0: This is all the stuff about leadership that they will never teach you at Bible college. In fact, it's not ostensibly a Christian book. I think it is a Christian book because there are biblical values running through it, but to the untrained eye, it just looks like a normal, everyday book on leadership. And I really wish every senior pastor in Australia would grab it. It's just stuff I've learnt about leadership in the last 40 years, and um, There's stuff like um, how to build a team, how to be an encourager, how to run meetings that people love to attend, Uh, things like how to deal with complaints, um, uh, how to correct somebody, um, how to confront somebody, how to win the issue without losing the person. Uh, There's all sorts of stuff just about the how-tos of leadership, uh, and they're all done in three-minute chapters, so you don't have to read it from beginning to end, when you realise there's a a team member on your team that's not performing very well and you need to have a little chat with them, you'll think, oh, Tim had a chapter on that and there are three key questions I need to ask. So that's Every Leader's Smart Book. It's a general leadership book. I want to think, look carefully and you'll see biblical values running through it, but only to the trained eye. The other one is my most uh, recent book, which is called Preach Like a Train Driver. I I don't know how Melbourne train drivers go, Uh, but let me tell you the essential job of a train driver. It's to pick passengers up from where they are and to transport them to where they're meant to be. And I want to say that is the job of a preacher as well. It's not to lecture people on how informed you are. It's not to fill them with biblical knowledge. It's to actually engage them where they are take them on a journey to where God wants them to be. And I think that is the job of a preacher. So I've reflected on 35 years of preaching. And uh, uh, if you'd like to uh, uh, polish your preaching, uh, that's only fairly hot off the press. Look, it was shortlisted this year for Australian Christian Book of the Year. Shortlisted means it lost. (laughs) (coughs) This is what I meant to say. I'm just happy to be nominated. That's... um, (coughs) That's there. There is a DVD called Speak Like a Train Driver, but I warn you, this was me addressing the New South Wales um, I can't remember the name, National Speakers Association of Australia. This is me presenting to professional speakers to teach them how to speak like a train driver. So there's nothing about leading people to Christ on that. It's a professional presentation of me training Professional speakers in how to be more engaging. Anyway, that's there if you want them. <clears throat> I forgot to mention all the prices are reduced from your price list. So if a book is twenty four ninety five, just take it downwards to the multiple of five dollars that's below it. So all the twenty four ninety five books are twenty dollars. Right, So you take it downwards to the multiple of $5. There is nothing under $5, just in case you're wondering. (laughs) So that means all the Bible-studied books are $5. And uh, if you want to use credit card, you've just got to bring that little slip with you that's in your hot little hands, and uh, I can give you a credit card order. We are starting to run out of a couple of things. If you want something and it's not there, fill the order in. I will post it to you at no extra charge. Does Does that make sense? So right at the beginning of lunchtime, I'll be there. Come and grab me if you need anything. Okay, well, we're ready to go again, yep. and um, we're looking forward to this next topic. That's for you. We'll use that one. Back to you, Tim. <laughs> Boy, okay. <clears> okay. <throat> I want you to uh, pair up with somebody right now. Just Turn to someone next to you or behind you and stare them in the face, look lovingly into their eyes and just make sure that you know who your partner is. If anyone's left without a partner, either quickly move or just make a little threesome somewhere, but two will work much better. If you happen to be paired with someone from a different church, you'll have more fun with this. Okay, you got a partner there? Here's... There is a question I'd like you to ask them, and I want them to ask you the same question. And here it is. How's your youth ministry going? Now, that's the question, but hang on. There are two rules for your answer. Two rules for your answer. Answer, Rule number one, your answer is to comprise three words, and three words only. Not two words, not four words, three words. Now, with the wonders of the English language... With three words, you could have a complete sentence. You could have a subject, a verb, and an object. All the Gen Ys are looking at me saying, what are you talking about? (laughs) It doesn't have to be a a sentence, though. You could have three adjectives. You could have an adverbial clause. You could have three gerunds. You could have any sort of word you like. I, I bet some of you come up with gerunds. I can almost guarantee it now. So three words to describe how your youth ministry is going. That's the first rule. It's got to be three words. And the second one is you have 60 seconds to ask them and for them to ask you. The question is, how's your youth ministry going? Three words, 60 seconds. Your time starts now. Thirty seconds up. Fifteen seconds to go. Okay, time to finish up. Has everybody asked and answered? I only had three words to say. Has everyone had a chance to ask the question? And everyone had a chance to answer the question. Okay. Rightio, boys and girls, attention at the front of class, please. I thought it might be fun just to find out what some of those groups of three words were. Now, in a moment, when I ask you you to put your hand up and just give us an answer, when you give us the three words, you don't have to tell us whose three words they were. They might have been your three words, they might have been your partner's three words, or they might have been three words you overheard from the group next to you. But I thought it might be fun just to find out... um, Three words that describe how somebody's youth ministry is going. Who wants in? Give us give us three words. Yes, ma'am. It is, good. it is good. Okay, love it. Let's get a few more. Three words, yes. Growing, challenging, and meaningful. Okay. I think growing is a gerund, actually. Gerund is a verb that you use as a noun. Like, I, I enjoy singing. Seeing right. sing is actually a verb, but you're using it as a noun. Okay, what were the three words again? Growing, challenging, and meaningful. Growing, challenging, and meaningful. I like it, okay. A F- few more people, three words, come on, yeah. Building, vast, and vast, um, purposeful. <laughs> um, I, okay, I need the subtitles. Building. Building, vast, V-A-S-T. Oh, vast, yeah. And purposeful. Purposeful, vast. Wow. Oh, that's impressive. It's a vast youth ministry. I love that. I mean, because we're a city and we have youth from an R. Oh, yeah. All over the place. Okay. Chambers, it could be as well. I have no idea what he just said. But... <laughs> yes, it sounds great. I'm very encouraged. Thank you. Thank you, my brother. You run ESL at your church. <laughs> Sorry. It's fine. I'm used to it. I love it. You are from the Republic of Ireland. No, Okay, I did some ministry in Northern Ireland. You've got to understand how how Christian Northern Ireland is. I'm seriously. They had a night like this for you know youth leaders come and and it was a night time. It like the sun went down at about four o'clock in the afternoon. It was cold and dark, and over a hundred youth leaders came in from little fishing villages all over the place. And seriously, it was such an encouraging ministry. Loved it. What church was it? It was held in Creek Road Presbyterian, yes. I think. Yeah. Good yeah. Oh, it was a good church. Everybody knows everything. <laughs> okay. Wow. We're going to catch up later. We'll need it. A... I've got Google I Translate, so it'll work. this is really cool. Thank you, my brother. Love having you here. Okay, a few more words to describe somebody's youth ministry. Come on, what did you come up with? Everyone's had overwhelmingly positive words so far. This might mean this session is unnecessary. Yep. Yeah, all right, I guess. <laughs> there is Australian. All right, I guess. <laughs> I love it. Ah, oh, the lexicologist would have so much fun with us today. Uh, a few more. Three, three words to describe somebody's youth ministry. Yep. Don't know holidays. And then, and then there was challenging, nerve wracking and exciting. Okay, challenging, nerve wracking and exciting. By the way, youth ministry should always be those three. Always. Okay, couple more. Three words. <coughs> three words to describe somebody's a youth ministry. Come on, you want in on this, you can do it. Okay, need to pray. I love it. By the way, youth ministry that knows that is going to go somewhere. Okay, that's good stuff. Time for one more. Three words to describe somebody's youth ministry. To be determined. determined." Ooh, Very deep, very thoughtful. Now, I love hearing those words. Way more important than what the words are is what lies behind them. Because sometimes you've got to work out what the words are based on. And one of our difficulties in youth ministry, it's very hard to know what we have to look for to make an assessment. Like at the end of a year of youth ministry and your senior pastor or somebody says, so how's the youth ministry going? And you need to make an assessment of it. Like, are we on the right track or do we need to change? Sometimes it's really hard to work out. Are are we doing well? And and sometimes, you know, if, if you ask me, How's my youth ministry going? Ask me after we've just had a really successful, you know, youth group where the kids, lots of kids came and they were frothing at the mouth with excitement and kids responded and people prayed and lives were changed and miracles. Ask me after one of those weeks and I'll give you three really positive words. But if you had one of those weeks where you think big community outreach, and you rent the you rent the community hall, and you hire a band to come in, and you you put it all over Facebook, and there's flies out at the school, and you got a thousand cans of of coke to sell to all the community kids that are going to come to your big outreach, and then little Miss Popular has her in your youth group has her 14th birthday party the same night. And 90% of your youth group go to her party and you're left in an empty hall with a band playing to nobody with 998 cans of Coke that you'll never sell um, with you know five kids and two stray dogs. Um, have a night like that and someone says, how's your youth ministry going? You come up with three very negative words. And if you're a youth leader, there's so much expected of you. You've got to mount the program, you've got to unlock the hall, you've got to make sure the games are organised, you've got to design the Bible study, you've got to make sure the supper shows up, you've got to make sure the kids are transported, parents are kept informed, that the place is cleaned up and locked up, ready for the women's breakfast the next morning. Um, and you know, you've got to disguise how many windows you actually broke. You've got to... Like seriously, if you're a youth leader, you are, you're racing around doing thousands and thousands and thousands of things and I know the stuff you're doing is good stuff. But wouldn't it be crazy if you were so busy doing all those good things that you missed out on doing the only thing that Jesus expects of your youth ministry? Like that would be craziness if you were busy doing good things that you actually missed out on doing the only thing that Jesus expects you to do. Now, my wife and I have been married for uh, 33 years. And before I met Karen, I want to say, I didn't know anything about women. And of course, after 33 years of marriage, still don't really understand anything about women. But when we married, I wanted to be a good husband. I wanted to be a good, Christ-like, great husband. Now, I didn't really know what a husband was meant to do. My own father had died when I was 11. I'd never really seen a husband in operation in a family. And I thought, when I marry Karen, I, I, I want to be a good husband. So I thought, what's a good husband meant to do? And I thought, well, I think a good husband should bring home a pay packet every week. And I want to say, for the last 33 years, I think I've done that. It's an Anglican pastor's pay packet, but it's still a pay packet. I thought a good husband should uh, put out the garbage. A good husband should mow the lawns. A good husband should change light bulbs. Good husband should kill spiders when they come in the house. Good husband should loosen the lids on the jars when they stick. And I'm thinking, if I keep doing all those sorts of things, is there a woman in the world that wouldn't be impressed with me as a husband? In our 18th year of our marriage, when we were uh, going to see yet another counsellor to try and make a good marriage better, Karen finally revealed to me, after 18 years, the one thing she really wanted from me. The one thing I had not been giving while I was racing around doing all these other things. Would you like to know what she wanted? She wanted intimacy. Now, when I say that word, the guys and the girls in this room are thinking of completely opposite things. (laughs) The girls are right. right? (laughs) She wanted a sharing at every level between us. She wanted recreational intimacy. She didn't want me having my activities, which I liked, and she would have her activities and we might just tell each other at dinner time. She wanted like, intellectual intimacy where we would debate ideas uh, and work things out together. Uh, She wanted uh, ministry intimacy where I didn't just have my youth ministry and she had her women's ministry, but that we'd do some ministry together. She wanted us to share at every level. She even wanted emotional intimacy. (laughs) Now, fellas, you've got to understand there's some pain in just saying these words. My wife wanted me to tell her how I was feeling on the inside. I'm thinking, is there a bloke in Australia who knows how he's feeling on the inside? She didn't want the, I'm the husband, I'm in control, I can do it. She didn't want the one size fits all, you know, I'm in control. She didn't want, you know, this this is this is Tim being happy. This is Tim being sad. You know? <laughs> this is Tim being overwhelmed. Uh, She didn't want the husband who could cope with everything. She wanted to know how I was going. She wanted to know when I felt overwhelmed. She wanted to know when I felt like I was failing. She wanted to know when I felt crushed. And I realized that for all these years, I'd been racing around doing lots of good things as a husband, but I'd missed out on doing the only thing my wife wanted. Now, that's craziness. When I was a boy, I played football. Well, hang on, this is Victoria. Um, you'd probably call it soccer. So when I say football, I don't mean what Victorians mean by the word football. I mean what the world means. <laughs> the season kicked off last night, just in case you were wondering, in Australia. Sydney FC defeated Newcastle 2-0. Alessandro De P- Del Piero scored one goal and set up the other one. <laughs> you don't care, do you? <laughs> You've got that funny game which is played all around... Four of Australia's six states, okay. Um, but when I was a kid, I played played the, the football that's got the round ball. You know the one. Now, I wasn't very good. I Seriously, I had a lot of fun, a little nine-year-old boy. And my friends were there, and it was fun. But I was seriously not that good. And we had a little goalkeeper, and we were under nines. The, the short, fat kid got put in goals. And, uh, like, he was really short and really fat. Like, he was... He was about as wide as he was high, one of those little roly-poly characters. He could have auditioned for a part in South Park, (laughs) which I know you only watched once for research purposes. (laughs) He was a good goalkeeper, but the problem was, as the years went by, we grew taller and he didn't. So the time we get to like 12-year-olds, we've still got this little roly-poly goalkeeper. And despite his skill, um, he simply couldn't reach any ball in the top third of the goal. So the coach had this brainwave to put in a new goalkeeper. Now, as a 12-year-old boy, I had grown a little earlier than some of my friends. I was probably the tallest on the team. And I wasn't much good on the field. And so my coach comes to me and says, Tim, your team needs you. Now, words like that had never come from his mouth for the previous three years. <laughs> and he said, I'm going to train you to be our new goalkeeper. Well, I was over the moon. You've got to understand, in the game of football, the position of goalkeeper is an extraordinary position. Goalkeepers have powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. And I, it was so much fun. I got the special uniform, I got the special hat, I got the special gloves it was like going to a private girls' school. (laughs) I was having the time of my life. And I'd be jumping up and down in goals and I'd be calling my fullbacks in to mark. I'd be signalling when the opposition was coming down, helpfully signalling to the referee when he missed the offside of the opposition striker. I was calling strategy and having the time of my life. Because, you see, at the beginning of the game, each team would run onto the field And shake hands. Now, when our team ran on, the captain would always lead us out, but guess who got to run out second? It was the goalkeeper, which was a substantial improvement from my previous position of last. (laughs) When it came time for the team photos, guess who holds the soccer ball in the team photo? It's not the captain. It's not the coach's son, although they're normally the same person. (laughs) Not that I'm bitter. It was the goalkeeper. And I was having the time of my life racing around doing all these things as goalkeeper. The only problem was I didn't actually achieve the only thing a goalkeeper is meant to achieve. I couldn't stop the ball going in the back of the net. And in my short six-week career as a goalkeeper... (laughs) The opposition scored thousands of goals because I was doing all this other stuff, but the only thing a goalkeeper is meant to do is to stop the ball getting in the net. Now, wouldn't it be crazy if you were busy as a youth leader doing all sorts of good stuff and you left out doing the only thing that Jesus expects you to achieve in your youth ministry? I want to take you to the Bible where Jesus shows you the only thing he expects you to to accomplish. Now, I'm going to take you to a very dangerous part of the Bible. It's a part of the Bible that you know so well that you'll just roll your eyes and, and overlook it. If you underline in your Bibles, I can guarantee these verses are already underlined. In fact, if you could buy Bibles that were already underlined before you bought them, this would be underlined in the printing presses before it rolled out. I want to take you to Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. I want to show you there's only one thing that Jesus really wants from you. Okay. Is it underlined? Are am using the church Bible. Don't underline it if it's a church Bible. Jesus is with his disciples. He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and establish a worldwide institution with a hierarchical structure, property committees, business meetings, set." It didn't actually say that, does it? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and build a youth group that is bigger and better than the church down the road. That's the Sydney version, I think. All authority has been given to me. Therefore, establish small groups where everyone will be warm and friendly in deep fellowship. Go and build praise and worship music that can only be described as awesome All these things might be good things, but you know that's not what Jesus said. The only thing that Jesus expects you to achieve in your youth ministry is when he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. And I want to say, that's the only thing you've got to achieve. Jesus doesn't expect you to achieve thousands of different things. He doesn't even expect you to achieve dozens of different things, the only reason that there is a youth ministry at your church is so one thing can be accomplished. All you got to do is make disciples of all nations. Like, how easy is that? Are you feeling like a weight has been lifted from your shoulders? It's only one thing you got to do. Make disciples of all nations. Now, i got to admit, when I first... When God sort of first um, drew my attention to all this, um, it was in the days where it was getting very funky for a business or an organisation to come up with a mission statement. You know, to put it into a short, pithy sentence... What your core business really is. And my senior pastor challenged me to come up with a, a mission statement for our youth ministry. And I came up with what I thought was the world's um, best and uh, briefest mission statement. And I released this to my leadership team. The mission statement for our youth ministry is <clears throat> to make disciples. And I'm thinking, how could anyone argue with that? Like, it's the very words of Jesus himself, if indeed he spoke English. (laughs) To make disciples. And one of my leaders says, Tim, doesn't it say make disciples of all nations? And I'm saying, well, of course we believe in global mission. Like, we have Global Mission Sunday. We have a map of the world on our youth group hall, which has photos of people that we're not quite sure who they are, (laughs) with bits of coloured string connecting them to countries that we can't pronounce. And we have a special offertory once a year and when they come back on furlough and, you know, have their little magic lantern show, um, we don't laugh that their fashions are 20 years out of date. We we show up and we we support them like we are a supporter of global mission because I'd given my youth ministry a stunted vision. I thought that our mission was simply to make disciples of teenagers in the local area that all we were being called to do was to make disciples of teenagers in the 2154 postcode. And I think my understanding of world mission was, providing every other postcode area in the world does the same, all postcodes will be saved. But I realised I had given my youth ministry a stunted vision. Jesus' vision for our youth ministry was to make disciples of all nations, and I had sold them a little stunted vision. We're just going to make disciples of some teenagers in the local area. And we had to have our eyes opened by God to see that the reason there is a youth ministry at St. Paul's Anglican Church at Castle Hill is so that because of our faithfulness, there will be disciples made in all nations. Now, when that sort of hit us, we had no idea of how to do that. We had no strategy as to how to reach the 200 and whatever nations there are on the planet. And we still don't. We simply started believing that somehow our little youth ministry was going to be used by God to change the destiny of nations. And I want to say your youth ministry, and I don't care whether you've got five kids or 500 kids at your youth ministry, The reason there is a youth ministry at your church is because Jesus wants to make disciples of all nations and that's the only thing he wants you to achieve. And we decided to believe it, not because we knew how to do it, but simply because Jesus had said it. We started to believe that somehow he'd use our little youth ministry to change the destiny of nations. Can I tell you the first change that happened as soon as we... Took our vision from this to that. When we realized that Jesus was raising us up as world changers, our local youth ministry got better. Suddenly, our students saw themselves as world changers. They could see there was a world to be won to Christ. Suddenly, our discipling of little Johnny Snotty Nose um, made a difference not just for little Johnny's sake, there were nations of the world, depending on us, discipling little Johnny well, so that under God's Holy Spirit and as he grows, God could then use him to be instrumental to going into all the world and making more and more disciples. And I just want to let you know I want to talk about how to make disciples. But before I do, don't lose sight of the All Nations. I don't know what church you're from, but I can tell you the only reason there is a youth ministry at your church, the only result that Jesus wants to see from all that hard work you're putting in, is that disciples will be made in All Nations because of you. Don't sell your youth ministry a stunted vision. Jesus actually wants your youth ministry to help bring the world to Christ. Let's talk about disciple making. Can you just close your eyes for a moment because I want you to picture a scene. Just let your eyes close over so there's blackness around you. And I want you to grab hold of whatever picture comes into your head when I say the following three words. Are you ready? Here we are. Jesus doing ministry. Jesus doing ministry. I want you to grab whatever picture comes into your head and hold the picture there. Jesus doing ministry. It it might be a biblical picture. It might be your favorite story about Jesus from your childhood. It might be what you read in your Bible this morning. Or it might be a modern day picture. You might be in the picture. Jesus doing ministry. Hold on to that picture. Look around. Who's there? What are they doing? Look around the picture. What are they saying? What's happening in the picture? Have you you got a picture there? Now just hold on to that picture and open your eyes. Hold on to the picture, open your eyes. Can we just find out what a few of those pictures were? This is not a theological exam. Because if there's 60 different people here, there'll be 60 different pictures. Can someone just tell us, just share with us, what picture did you see when I said the words, Jesus doing ministry? What did you come up with? Jesus um, talking to large crowds. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, the, the Sermon on the Mount. You know, blessed are the cheesemakers. All that sort of stuff. Okay, crowds being swayed by his by his his teaching. Great stuff. Let's get a few more pictures. What, what did you see? I'm sorry. Jesus washing people's feet. The lowliest job of the lowless, lo, the lowliest servant. And there is Jesus modelling how to serve other people, telling us to go and do the same. Okay, that is a great picture of Jesus um, doing ministry. Some more. What picture did you get? Yes, sir. Okay. Yes, yes, ma'am. Yes, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, Jesus kind of going to people in their everyday life, so in their Yes, Jesus going to people in their everyday life. Uh, as they're at the market, as they're talking, as they're sowing their fields and interacting with them, investing in them, going out to where they are. Okay, good picture. A few more. Jesus doing ministry, yes. Jesus talking to the woman at the well, midday, all by herself, knows the immoral life she is leading, and yet he offers her something that will cause her to never thirst again. Okay, hanging out with a sinful woman, that's Jesus doing ministry. Okay, a couple more. Jesus doing ministry. Yes, sir. She's on the cross. Right. Ministry. All words like reconciling, words like atonement. He's there taking our sin, our punishment, our guilt, uh, taking the anger of God so that we don't. That is a superb picture of ministry. Yes. Yes, walking up to people and saying things like, come, follow me. And people have got to say, do I leave my family? Do I leave my income? Do I leave everything in my life and follow this man to who knows where? Whole stack of stuff. By the way, you guys come up with some really good pictures. And I think most of your pictures are better than the picture that I immediately go to. I love Jesus doing the big spectacular stuff. You know, there he is walking on the water. There he is stopping the storm. There he is feeding 5,000 people. He's healing the paralytic that's lowered through the roof. There's Lazarus coming out of his tomb. There's the woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. There's Bartimaeus who cannot see. There's the lame man who has never walked. I, I love the big spectacular ministries and miracles that Jesus did. And he always had the messages for the crowd. And he would often back it up with signs from God. But so many of your pictures were so much closer because if you look at what Jesus did in his three years, if you analyze his time management, who did he spend time with? What ministry did he mainly do? You will work out very quickly that most of his time was spent with 12 very frail, fragile, flawed men that he invested into 12 disciples. And when I say invested, yes, he taught them God's word, but he, he did life with them. He walked with them. He talked with them. They cooked together. They ate together. They kept down for the night together. He trained them. He took them on his ministry trips. He equipped them. He corrected them, he rebuked them, he laughed with them, he cried with them, he sowed God's word into their life, and he invested his own life into their life, that he would reproduce in them the passion that he himself had for the world. And if you ask the question, why did Jesus spend his time that way, the answer had to do with his mission. That is, what did he want to accomplish? His mission was not to run a spectacular ministry program which would attract the crowds and collapse when he left three years later. And I know that none of you would do that either. His ministry, his mission was to make disciples of all nations. His method was to invest his life into a small number of sinful men. Now, if you want to ask the question, was his method successful? Like, did it work? Did it achieve the outcome he was after? I think the answer is sitting in this building. Here we are in the sovereign nation of Australia, a nation which nobody in Jesus' time even knew existed. We are in a land that nobody knew about. So when Jesus is saying, you know, make disciples of all nations, there isn't one of his disciples saying, oh, we need to send a team to Australia. We're we're an unknown land. Nobody knew this country ever existed. And here we are in the 21st century, a time frame which nobody in Jesus' day could even imagine. Come on, if you went back to Jesus' time now and took one techno gadget with you, our you would be worshipped as God. Does it make sense nobody then could ever imagine this world 21 centuries later? So here we are in a time frame that nobody could imagine, in a country that nobody knew about, and look, disciples, look around. There are disciples here in this unknown country, in this unknown century. That is, Jesus' method worked his mission was to make disciples of all nations. His method was to disciple a small number to do it. And your presence in this room today shows that it works. So, let's ask the question, how did Jesus make disciples? What was his strategy? What was his methodology? I want to take you to a verse in the Bible. Is Mark chapter 3, verse 14. It's a summary verse. It's a verse that if you were reading Mark's gospel quickly, you would jump over it. Because you just say, this is a summary verse, just summarizing what just happened. It's just after Jesus has chosen his 12. And it describes not only how Jesus discipled his 12, it maps out how he will spend his time for the next three years. It's a strategy statement about disciple-making. Mark chapter 3, verse 14, goes like this. And Jesus appointed 12, designating them apostles, that they might be with him, that he might send them out to preach. And if you go on to the next verse, and to have authority over demons. It's the whole ministry bit. And I'm suggesting to you there are three distinct strategy steps that Jesus takes so that he will make disciples. The first one is in the beginning of the verse. He appointed 12, designating them apostles. He chose people to follow him. He would walk up to people and say things like, come follow me. And he would call that person from their past life and take them to a certain future. So, he appointed 12, designating them apostles. Step two is the next bit in that same verse. Have a look at it. That they might be with him. And you know that those small number of words means for the next three years, he invested his life into their life. He taught them God's word in a way that was real. He reproduced his passion for the world into the lives of his 12 so that they would then go and have a further ministry. Step one, he appointed 12. Step two, that they might be with him. Step three, that he might send them out to preach and have a a ministry. Can I simplify those headings for you? He brought them in, he built them up, he sent them out. That is how Jesus made disciples. So let's ask the next question. How do we make disciples? What would be the best way for us to do it in Melbourne in the 21st century? I have a thought for you. It's a radical thought, but just bear with me for a moment. What if the best way to make disciples of young people in the 21st century was the same way that Jesus did it? (laughs) Like, has that got a chance of ever working? Is it possible that his principles could actually be the best principles? Come on, if that were true, that would save you buying so many books on youth ministry, wouldn't it? Oh, except for the ones out there. Well, I want to suggest that Jesus gives us those same three steps in the Great Commission. So can you flip back to Matthew 28? And I want to suggest to you... That that same strategy is there in Jesus' command to make disciples of all nations. So, Matthew 28, verses 18 or thereabouts. Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. That's the command. Now comes the strategy. Step one. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, pause right there. As soon as you hear the word baptize, you get a picture in your mind of what that looks like. Because you've seen baptism happen, and right now, you can't get rid of the picture, it's there. Does it make sense to you that depending which church tradition you are from, baptism is probably done differently at almost every church? Like, seriously, if we had 10 people, Christians here, from 10 different denominations, does it make sense to you that the picture that's in their head right now, there are 10 different pictures of how every church does... Like, is this news to you? Are you thinking, no, every, every church in the world does baptism just the way we do? Have I shattered some of your illusions? Are you aware that there are two theological questions which have had Christians debating for centuries and you know gainfully employ thousands of professors at theological colleges? (laughs) Here are the two key questions about water baptism. Here they go. Question number one: At what stage of a person's faith journey is it most appropriate? Like when they're born, like when they're a child, when they turn 15, when they become a Christian, when they're an adult? Does it happen instantaneously the moment they become a Christian? Do you do a 10-week baptism course? The Lutherans have a 12-month baptism preparation course. Um, You've got to work those things out. So question one is, what stage of a person's faith journey is is the place for water baptism? And the second question that they debate endlessly about, this is the key one, precisely how many litres of water are needed (laughs) to make it effective? And if you map it out on a spectrum, look, I'm from an Anglican church. We tend to baptise infants with, you know, the uh, government-approved water conservation method of, like, hardly any. (laughs) And right at the other end, you've got, you know, it has to be by full immersion in the waters of the Jordan River at Jerusalem. Um, And you could map, and there's the Salvation Army. I love my salvos down that end with their sort of dry-cleaning method. (laughs) But You understand, the salvos do not have baptism in their church. You you knew that. Are the Salvos good, guys? Seriously. They're some of my favorite Christians in the world. But do you understand how, as soon as I say baptize, you get a picture in your head, and I want to say, no, that's not the picture I'm after. So just wipe the picture. Um, I don't know much Greek. Um, Souvlaki, you know, (laughs) calamari... um, but those who bothered going to Greek classes at college uh, tell me that the word that is translated baptize is the Greek word baptisdo. You can understand why it's translated baptize. And there is an ordinary, everyday meaning to the word baptisdo. It means to immerse. It means to immerse, by the way, to immerse and leave immersed. I hope none of you ever do that with people and water. <laughs> Would you like to be with Jesus in glory? Yes. Oh, Mission accomplished. You can find the word in recipes of that time. That you marinate, you're going to marinate the meat. It says you baptizo the meat in the marinade. You immerse it and leave it immersed. That is the simple everyday meaning of the word. So, can I read you the Matthew 28 passage? and this time, put the everyday meaning of baptisdo, immerse, rather than the ecclesiastical translation, baptised. How do you make disciples? Number one, by immersing them into what? Into the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Just out of interest, no mention of water in that one. That is, you immerse them into Christ, which you might then symbolize by water baptism. You've worked out that baptism is the symbol, not the reality. You immerse people into the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. You immerse them into Christ, who takes them to the Father and who sends the Spirit. At some point, if you're going to make disciples of young people, you've got to baptise them, immerse them into Christ. At some point, you've got to say, are you ready to submit your life to Christ? Are you ready to become a Christian? If you're going to make disciples, first step is to baptise them, immerse them into Christ, however your church will symbolise that in water. But you know you can't just leave them making a decision. You now need a second step if you're going to grow them as disciples. So let's go back to Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Step one, immersing them into the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Step two, next few words in the verse, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. There's a sowing in time to sow God's word into young people's lives so that they will no longer be children, tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine by the cunning of men in their craftiness and deceitful wiles, rather speaking the truth in love, allow to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together with every joint with which it is supplied when each part is working properly, makes bodily growth and upbuilds itself in love. Ephesians 4. You've got to sow God's word. You've got to teach them obedience. You've got to teach them repentance. You've got to teach them Christian disciplines. Teach them generosity. Teach them to be sacrificial. You sow God's word into them by teaching them to obey everything that Jesus has commanded. Step three. Look in your Bible. Can you see step three? Some of you are looking saying, my Bible doesn't have a step three. <laughs> Where's that third step you said was here? Well, think about this. If you have got to teach a new disciple everything, teach him to obey everything that Jesus has commanded, what's the last thing he's just commanded? What's the last thing he's just commanded? Go and make disciples. Which means if you're going to teach this person everything he's just commanded, You've got to teach the growing disciple how to go and make more disciples. That's the third step of making disciples of young people. Let's simplify that. You've got to bring them to Christ, you've got to build them up in Christ, and you've got to send them out for Christ. That's Jesus' strategy for making disciples in Melbourne in the 21st century. Can I go back to the very first question I asked you? How's your youth ministry going? When some people answer that, they answer it sort of down here. If kids are showing up at their youth ministry, they say it's going well. Like if you've got more kids in your youth group than you had six months ago, you're saying, well, we must be doing what Jesus really wants because they think that Jesus says, go and make attenders of all nations. Others of you with a little bit of theological background say, no, 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 no. You've got to actually, um, you've got to have conversions. You've got to have kids come into Christ. You've got to see salvations. And they answer the question, how's your youth ministry going? By saying, well, how many kids have become Christians in the last year? And they think if kids are making decisions for Christ, they're doing what Jesus said because they think that Jesus said, go and make decision cards in all nations. Others of you from a great Reformed background will say, no, no, you've got to have them, have them in Bible study groups. Like, seriously, you've got to have them around the Bible, learning God's Word, being taught the Scriptures. And if when they answer the question, how's your youth ministry going, they think it's going great because they've got kids in Bible studies because they think that Jesus said, go and make Bible students of all nations. I want to suggest to you the right place to answer that question is do you have students who, because you have helped them to say yes to Jesus, because you are sowing God's word into their life, are they now active in reproducing that life change in the life of somebody else? Are they now going back to their schools with a passion to win their friends to Christ and to see their friends say yes to Jesus like they have? Because that's what discipleship is. Discipleship is is when you take the life of Christ that is in you and you reproduce it into somebody else so that they will take the life of Christ that is in them and then they will reproduce it into the life of somebody else so that... They will take the life of Christ that is them and they will reproduce that into the life of somebody else. And I want to say that is the only way the kingdom of God has ever grown. Sometimes us youth leaders like to think that the kingdom of God grows one youth program at a time. Sometimes us preachers like to think that the kingdom of God grows one stadium at a time. But even if there is a youth program, even if there is a stadium, I can guarantee the only way it will actually grow is when one Christian invests their life in Christ into the life of one of their friends and inculcates into them a passion that Jesus has to see the kingdom of God live in this world. So how is your youth ministry going? Let me say a quick word about programming. We're not talking about program today, but I just want to make an implication for how you program. Um, Don't write these down, forget them as soon as you see them, but just roughly, um, here are the programs of our youth ministry. You don't have to know what they are. All I need to point out is we've got two specific ministries that will help bring students to Christ, there are four, including church on Sunday which are aimed at building students up in Christ. There are three that are aimed at building um, high schoolers as uh, disciple makers and the ones on the last one are aimed at our leaders to actually help them to be disciple makers. just want to ask a question about your programs. Do your programs reflect your strategy? Now, the unfortunate answer is that the answer is always yes your programs will actually always represent your strategy and your programs will always represent your heart. But you just want to check your programs. Do they actually help achieve one of the three things that Jesus has told us to do? By the way, if someone comes up with a great idea in our planning program for a great new activity and idea, we'll listen to it and then we'll ask the question, so will this help us bring students to Christ better than what we're doing? Will it help build students up in Christ better than what we're doing? Or will it help send our students back to their schools to make more disciples better than what we're doing? And if the answer is no, guess what? We don't do it. Let me give you one more thing on program. The key programs for you, if you're going to be a disciple maker, will always be what I call the turnaround programs. These are the programs that will take a student from one level of your strategy to the next level. It will help them turn the corner. Very quickly, let me show you what our threes are. I apologise for the, uh, the spacing. Uh, Macs and PCs really don't like each other deep down. Uh, discovering Jesus is actually what we keep offering. By the way, there's a copy of it on the, on the bookstore. Um, we offer students who come to Crossfire a five-week course to say, hey, you like Crossfire? Remember, Crossfire is evangelistic. You like the stuff that we talk about Jesus? If you'd like to find out more from the Bible about what it means to follow Jesus today, we're going to start a Discovering Jesus group. Small group of friends, about the same age. You meet one hour before youth group with one of our leaders. No games, no activities, an hour of Bible study. Would you like to come along and find out how to give your life to Christ? And we have a five-week Bible study. And at the end of it, we say, that's it. Thank you for coming. And then sometimes the students will say, look, this was really good. Could we keep this on? And then we go to our next turnaround ministry, which is our discipleship teams. Um, <laughs> these are our permanent small groups that meet throughout the week. But they're called discipleship teams for a purpose. It's like training for football, it's training night. They are under the guidance of a coach and they're being taught how to be a faithful disciple and how to be a passionate disciple maker. And by the way, in our session after lunch, uh, John has asked me to talk about how you make your discipleship groups work. But that turns, if, if discovering Jesus turns bringing in into building up, then our discipleship teams turn building up into sending out. And the one that turns sending out back into bringing in is peer witness. Now, that will not show up as a program on our youth ministry. It's our expectation that every student at their high school will be standing for Christ and seeking to reproduce their heart into that of their friends. And if you ask, how do we keep them accountable for doing that? That's their D-team coach and their whole D team will be uniting with them and rejoicing when one of their friends shows up at one of our things. Sometimes uh, we have a camp. Uh, We have a camp once a year. We take away, I don't know, 250 high schoolers, um, and it's aimed at Christians. But we're aware that some kids who think they're Christians really aren't, and so one of our sessions will be more remarkably evangelistic. And at the end of it, I will actually ask students to get out of their seat, come forward and make a commitment to Christ. And I don't know, maybe 50 students will come down the front. We finish, I send them out with 50 leaders and I realise I'm stuck with the other 200 all by myself. And so what I'll often do is I'll just say, okay, time to come clean. If one of those students had just got out of their seat and made a public commitment to become a Christian... If one of them is a friend that you have been praying for to do just that, can you put your hand up now? And about 75% of the room will put their hand up. That is, they tell me that puts them in the top 5% of Christians in the world who have actually seen a friend who they've sown into make a commitment to Jesus. But one of our aims is that every kid, before they get to year 12, will have seen at least one of their friends come to Christ through their ministry, and once that's happened, you don't need to motivate them for evangelism from that point on. That's what disciple-making is. I've got no idea if there's any more slides here. No, there I just, um, can I just finish that up? Discipleship, disciple-making, is where you take the life of Christ that is in you and you reproduce it into the life of somebody else. Let me finish by asking you my first question. How's your youth ministry going? Let me put it a little bit more succinctly. How is your youth ministry going at achieving the only thing that Jesus wants you to achieve? Can I pray for you? Oh, Father God, you are stimulating our thinking. From your word, you are revealing your truth. Help us to sharpen each other today so that we will be more faithful to you and that we will be more effective for you. Thank you that as brothers and sisters we can learn together. Father, thank you for the food that you have prepared for us that we might enjoy the bounty of your goodness. Father God, make today a day of decisions so that we will never be the same again. Amen.